found on page 632 of the Pew Bibles. Psalm 139, starting at the first verse. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I might make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hold me and the light will become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've come to the end of our sermon series on the Psalms, and I feel like I've lucked out because we get to talk today about Psalm 139, which is one of my favorite Psalms. A few weeks ago, Steve was asking us um, which Psalms would make the top hits collection, which Psalms are some of the ones that we would kind of think most about. Um, And we mentioned Psalm 23, and Psalm 139 was one of the ones that we all named then. Um, It's a really good Psalm to land all of our thinking about the Psalms, Because this psalm reminds us so beautifully of the closeness of God and the intimacy God invites us into with him. Um, And that intimacy is the heart of prayer. It's what prayer is really about. And that's what we've been looking at the psalms to teach us. Um, So would you pray for me now as we listen to what God has to say to us today? Lord, you have searched us and you know us so well. You know our hearts, you know each person sitting here, and you know what we each need to hear this morning to draw us closer to you. We pray that by your Spirit, you would open our ears to hear in my human words your everlasting word for us now. Amen. So many years ago, when I was studying at a university in America, I took a class from one of the top uh, scholars in my department. His name was Professor John Levinson, and he was a popular and engaging lecturer, but he was also a bit peculiar. At the time I took his class, he was an early middle-aged man, but he dressed like a respectable old gentleman. He had bow ties and tailored suits and Oxford shoes, and he had this air of utmost propriety about him. So on the first day of our class, he had the list of student names, and he took the roll call and called out our full names, um, and raised our hands. And, but from that point onward, he addressed us only by our surnames. 
So I was Ms. Temple. I was never Angie or even Angela, just Ms. Temple. And that was how we called all of our students. Um, it would be things like, Mr. Johnson, what do you make of this text here? Um, it was very formal. And it felt a little like being at Hogwarts, you know, Mr. Potter, Ms. Granger. This wasn't the norm for most American universities, where a lot of universities, um, the professors would have more informal relationships and a more relaxed mode of speaking with their students. But on that first day of class, Professor Levinson explained this peculiar manner by quoting another writer who said, I can understand formality, and I can understand informality, but I cannot grasp informality. To him, informality was a cheap way of relating to another person. Either you are polite and formal, or you are close and intimate, but you shouldn't be some murky place in between. Now, Professor Levinson's behavior felt especially odd in an American context, because we Americans tend to be pretty informal and relaxed and friendly, and we smile a lot more than other countries do. I mean, there have been studies that have shown this. Americans tend to be a lot smilier. Um, it's just part of the culture. Um, I heard this Finnish joke. And to, um, in Finland, they say that when a stranger smiles at you on the street, either A, he's drunk, B, he's insane, or C, he's American. <laughs> and so, or maybe all three. Jen said it could be all three. Um, so. But you English also have um, your ways of being informal with each other. I remember blushing the first time a complete stranger called me love. I think I was ordering some chips, and the guy behind the counter handed them to me with a, here you go, love. And I was just like, well, oh, this is inappropriate. So I'm just, just ordering chips, that's all. So, um, but that name, love, obviously doesn't mean love um, here. So for most of us, we tend to be either formal or informal, but hardly ever intimate. Um, we mostly live in these wor worlds of formality and informality, but we reserve intimacy for a spouse or for a best friend or for a family member. But when it comes to our relationship with God, we have the same tendency. We often relate to God either informally or formally, but hardly ever with intimacy. So we might see God as formal, as someone who's distant, who's far above us, who's um, you have to use the appropriate language and title with and be super respectful with. Or we could go to the other extreme. We could see God as informal, as some kind of big guy in the sky who just takes our prayer requests whenever we feel like praying. Um, when I was in high school in the 90s, there was this popular t-shirt design going around that said, Jesus is my homeboy. Um, and then I realized how old I am because my daughter read that and said, Mom, what's a homeboy? And um, I had to explain, he's like mates, like best friends. So Jesus is kind of my, my mate. Um, and he is, but he's also creator of the whole universe. I mean, he's, he's God. Um, so we also veer, we often veer one way or the other, being either really formal or really informal with the Lord. But there's a much better way, a way that the Psalms teach us, a way of intimacy with God. Now, at first hearing, this language of intimacy might make us blush. In our Western culture, intimacy often means romantic relationships. It's a way of describing a sexual relationship. But that word intimacy just means close familiarity. You can have intimate friends, or you can acquire an intimacy in medieval English literature, or a room can have a sense of intimacy about it. 
Intimacy means closeness. It means a familiarity that's protected, that's treasured. And the amazing news with Psalm 139 is that we can have this kind of closeness with God. We can have a familiarity with the Lord. What the Lord knows is better than we know ourselves, yet he still loves us more than we could ever imagine. So we'll dive into the psalm. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to um, open up to Psalm 139, and we'll just be going through the psalm line by line. Maybe we could have it back up on the screen if we just pull up the first verses, and we'll, we'll have a look at that. So verse 1, David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. The Lord knows David in and out. He knows all of his comings and goings. He knows every step he takes. Everything about him, God knows it full well. Now, the Hebrew word here for search is a really strong verb. It's klarat. And it's this word that has a sense of digging into or thoroughly excavating something. The same word is used to describe mining for looking for precious metals and minerals. So when David is saying that God is... Um, is, is, correct, is conducting a thorough investigation of us, that God is, God is interested in every aspect of our lives, and that God thinks that we are endlessly enthralling. Um, one translation says, you dig me, Lord. Or another, you've got a file on me. It's like an auditor examining his books, looking closely, um, searching at them. And then also the Hebrew word for know is a, a form of the verb yada. And yada has a whole host of meanings, but it includes to know someone closely, even physically. In Genesis 4, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. To be known like that is to be naked, uncovered, exposed. And this is how God knows you and me. We have a prayer in the Anglican Church. God is the one to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hidden. That's the kind of knowledge God has of us. Now we can hear this, and this can be a bit startling because while most of us don't really want to be known that well, um, we tend to think that there are some things about us that are private, at least for most people, um, but all of these things aren't private from God. So we can hear this as bad news, but it's not, it's good news. God is not shocked by everything we think and we say, but all the ways we go. There's an expression that when they really get to know you, they'll run. But this is the opposite of what the Lord does with us. So look at verse 5. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hands upon me. So here the Hebrew verb for hem is tasar, and it means to bind to besiege even, to confine or cramp, to secure and shut in, to enclose or encompass. It's this picture of God surrounding a city like an army besieging it. We look ahead of us, there's God. We look behind us, there's God. We look either side of us, there's God. We fly away to the other side of the planet and there's God again. There's just no escape. God is simply relentless. He will not give up. He will not leave us alone. Even when we think we've thrown him off the scent that the deepest darkness will hide us, he follows us there too. Christ even descends into hell to rescue us, to come after us. 
So David is saying that God has us cornered. You hem me in, verse 5 reads, behinds and before, backwards and forwards. So God knows us. He really knows us. And the Lord's response to seeing all of our ways and all of our thoughts and our words is not to run the other way, but to run towards us, to embrace us, to surround us, to engulf us, to recklessly pursue us, to lay his hand upon us. Now David is just blown away by this truth. He says in verse 6, this knowledge is too wonderful for him and he will never really get it. And so David wonders aloud in verses 7 to 12, is there anywhere he can go where the Spirit of God will not be? In the heavens, in the depths, God is there, even in the darkest places. Now David imagines sailing across distant seas. And in the ancient world, the sea was the most dangerous, treacherous place to go. And even in these raging shores, um, the hand of God is guiding him. Geography and distance are nothing to the Lord's. I remember sitting on an airplane above the Atlantic Ocean over 15 years ago, and I read this psalm, and I found such grace in reading verses 9 and 10. It was reassuring to know that even as I was rising on the wings of the morning, coming to dwell on this far side of the sea, this really is a far-off island. You guys are really far away. (laughs) Um, Even here, the hand of the Lord was guiding me, and it was holding me fast. So David wonders in verses 11 to 12 whether darkness can hide him. And the answer is that darkness is his night, is his day to the God. Darkness is his light to him. So the Lord knows all of our paths, all of our travels, all our thoughts and words, all of our wanderings, even in the darkest of places. And then in the next section, in verses 11 to 16, David realizes the love of God is deeper still. So David looks at his own life, and he sees the Lord has been there all along, from the moment he was conceived in his mother's womb. Um, I don't think we actually had the rest of the reading in this, this, um, of this psalm, but um, let me read it for us now, and we'll just hear the rest of it. Um, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked, away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with an evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So if we go back to verse 13, David looks at his life and he sees the Lord has been there from all along, from the moment he was conceived in his mother's womb. 
Now this is astounding. God created the vast universe, galaxy upon galaxy, our world and all that fills it. And he's also interested in the cells coming together in one mother's body as each new life is formed. David describes God as knitting them together like a master craftsman. And then God is compared to a master writer as well. Before David takes his first breath, the Lord has made a record of all of his days in God's book. He knows every day that will meet us long before that day dawns. Now this is not to say that God determines our every move. God has given us free will. But it's rather that God knows what has happened. He knows what's happening and what will happen. And he also knows what could happen over every possible contingency. A bishop named Ambrose said that we know some things, but God knows incomparably more, greater and better. It's like we experience time like a river and we're traveling along its currents, but God can see the whole river from its source to its ends. God is over all of our days. When I was a teenager, I had a sign in my room that said, don't be afraid of tomorrow. God is already there. So David looks at his life. He can see the hand of God has been upon every detail upon it before he even took his first breath. And in verses 17 to 18, he describes the thoughts of God as being more than the grains of sand. There's a really interesting ambiguity in the Hebrew of this verse. In verse 17, you could translate it as, um, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God's. Um, let's see, I'll go back to that. Oh, so, just, sorry, don't worry, Heather. Um, let's see. Uh, we'll go back to that. <laughs> Too many verses this morning. Um, okay, but in, I'll go, we'll come back to that. So in Psalm 139, 17, um, you can translate it as, how precious to me are your thoughts, your God. Or you could translate it as, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God. And I like this second possible translation. So you think about it, it suggests that God's thoughts about us are precious. And David goes on to say that they're more than the numbers of grains of sand in the universe. So David's thinking about this, and it almost seems like in verse 18 that he's fallen asleep counting these grains of sand about all these thoughts the Lord has about him. And then it's like David is suddenly jarred awake, and he says, awake. I'm still with you. David gets lost in the overwhelming vastness of the thoughts and infinite love God has for him. But then as we keep on reading the psalm, we come to verses 19 to 22. And here David asks, Don't I hate those who hate you, O Lord? He asks God to slay the wicked, to take down all the enemies of the Lord. Now when we read these words, they feel out of place, don't they? It um, felt like we were in a really nice psalm, and then all of a sudden these verses come in, and you go, oh, where's, where's this come from? Probably a modern-day editor would strike those out and say this doesn't really fit with the theme and the tone of the psalm. Um, so a lot of times we, we come to these parts of the Bible that feel really hard, and we think, what can we do with that? Um, but these verses are a place where we have to read more deeply and to turn the words over more carefully and to pray more open-endedly. We can't really pick and choose what we like and don't like in the Bible. And at the end of a reading, when we say, this is the word of the Lord's, we don't just mean some of it. We mean all of it, all the words of it. So what might be the word of the Lord in these verses? The one thing I noticed here 
is that David is not talking about his own enemies. He's written a lot of other psalms about that. Um, But in this psalm, David is talking about the enemies of God. It's the ones who are wicked, who speak maliciously against God, who rise up against him. These are the enemies David is wanting to get rid of. So it's not his personal enemies, but all the people who are against the Lord. So notice then where the intimate love of God has led David. It's drawn him into a closer walk with God, where David starts to know the person of the God better and to see the world more like how God sees it. As David knows love of God, he in turn comes to be bothered by all that is against God in our worlds. He knows God is an infinitely loving and close creator and sustainer, and yet there's so many in our worlds who reject God and actively work against him. And so David's words in verses 19 to 22 are a prayer to write to the world, to get rid of all the evil in it, to loosen the powers of the enemy of God. Now a lot of our psalms are full of requests made to God, but notice in Psalm 139, there are only a couple of places where David asked God to do something. The first is here, where David asked God to do away with the wicked. And the second is in the closing verses, 23 to 24. So most of the psalm is made up of declarations, of statements, but here at the end come a series of requests. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Now David knows that God has searched him and known his heart, and that God has known all his days, and every thought he has, and every word he says, and every move he makes. And David's response is to ask God to keep on doing so, to do so more and more, and to lead David into life everlasting. So I wonder, are these words words that you would want to ask of God? Are they a prayer that you would want to pray? God wants so much more than formality or informality from us. He desires true intimacy where you know yourself as being fully known to him. He who has more thoughts of you than there are grains of sand in the universe. And if you do want this intimacy, How do we get there? It's not as hard as we often make it, but we do have to do one thing. We just have to show up and clock the hours. It's like in a friendship or any close relationship. The way you get close is by spending time together, by being with each other. So we talk a lot in our church about spiritual disciplines, about things like prayer and reading the Bible and being in community. And all of these ways are just ways we can put ourselves in the way of God, in the love of Jesus. Throughout Psalm 139, God invites us into his presence. Intimacy with God isn't our doing, it's God's doing. It's about what God has done for us in Christ. We're tempted to think the most important thing we can do is make a personal decision for Jesus. But the fact is it isn't. The most important thing is that Christ has made a decision for us. As Paul writes to the Christians in Galatia, it isn't so much about knowing God as it is about knowing that we are known by God and loved by him. A few years ago, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, compared prayer to sunbathing. He said, We're lying on a beach, 
something is happening, something that has nothing to do with how you feel or how hard you're trying. You're not going to get a better tan by screwing up your eyes and concentrating. You just got to give the time. That's it. All you have to do is turn up. And then things change at their own pace. You simply have to be there where the light can get at you. Now this is what Psalm 139 is about. Willingly put ourselves into God's light, confident that nothing he finds will stop him from loving us. So as we come to the end of our sermon series about praying the Psalms, um, perhaps it's worth reflecting back and asking the question a lot of people ask about prayer. Do we as Christians need to pray every day? Must we pray every day? I hope that Psalm 139 helps us to see the answer is yes, but it's not that kind of must. It's not about duty. It's not about one more chore to tick off our list. Prayer is not meant to be a rule. It's about the joy of relationship. We pray because we want to pray, because we want to be with God. So the question, like, must I pray every day, is like asking, must I kiss my husband or wife or kids every day? <laughs> yes, but not out of obligation. <laughs> Rather, out of an expression of love. Prayer isn't a duty to be endured, but it's a light to be enjoyed. The joy of being searched and known and yet fully and comprehensively loves. Let's pray now. Our God, thank you that you do know us so well and you invite us into life with you. And we pray, Father, we would say yes to that. That we would say yes to being with you, to spending time with you, to knowing your love that searches us and knows us full well. Thank you, Jesus, that you've made a way for that. We pray as a church we would want that more and we would hunger for that more and more. Amen. So we'll have